All right, thank you, John, uh, for that introduction earlier. Grateful for it. And I just want to take a time to even introduce some of uh, our team here. As John had said, we're in the process of launching a new church with the Southern Baptist Association and through the North American Mission Board. And so Reach Fellowship uh, is our church, and we're going to be planting that church in the 90805 North Long Beach area. Uh, And it's our desire to be a snapshot of heaven uh, in, in terms of our multi-ethnic and multicultural makeup. So I just wanted to take some time, if I could, to even acknowledge those who are on our team. If you would just stand up and allow the members of this church to acknowledge you, that would be great. This is some of our church plant team. And um, we're just excited. There's a team of us, a, a group of men, who have decided that uh, the Lord's tug on our hearts uh, was one that matched uh, one another's. And so we have just decided to come together for the planting of a new church. And every time you're doing a work like this, you realize that the work is truly too much for you, uh, that we don't have it figured out, and there are not uh, any set of skills or gifts that we possess that would necessarily make us ready for it. Uh, but on the, at the same time, the Lord has made us ready, and we're excited about it. And so we're prayerfully going into that, and we ask that you would just be continuing to pray for us. We've been friends of this church for a long time. PJ, uh, I remember the conversations that we had when he was coming over to say, hey, there's an opportunity to go and to revitalize a church that has been a light in Bellflower for many, many years. And what do you think? And so I remember sitting at Chick-fil-A with him talking about how excellent of an idea it would be. Uh, Because, in fact, at the time, our team was considering whether or not we should revitalize the church or to plant a new one. Uh, And so, anyway, we're just grateful. My family, as uh, they were introduced, we live actually in Bellflower, not too far away. And my daughter last year would come on Wednesday nights and help teach catechism to uh, the children in Bible study. So, again, we've been around for a while, and it's just an honor and privilege to stand before you this morning with the Word of God. And to proclaim his excellencies. Uh, As you invite, uh, or as I invite you to join me in Colossians chapter 3, I want to begin by just uh, telling us a little bit of a story. Three years ago, Disney remade uh, the motion picture, The Lone Ranger. Anybody remember The Lone Ranger from the 30s and 40s and 50s? Uh, The black and white film uh, was remade. And there was a moment in the film where you have the Lone Ranger, who is this former Texas Ranger, who is out fighting outlaws. And he's doing that alongside his sidekick, if you would, a Native American man. His name's Tonto. And as the Lone Ranger and Tonto are walking through the desert, all of a sudden, there are battle-ready Indian or Native Americans surrounding them on both sides. A Lone Ranger looks to Tonto and he says, looks like we got a battle on our hands. What are we going to do? And at that moment, Tonto looks at him and says, what do you mean by we, white man? Instantly, the shallow and only skin-deep difference between these two men was a mountain in the desert. There was no common enemy or common goal that could have reconciled that moment. All of their collective efforts 
were shallow. They were skin deep. The world's attempts at establishing unity will always fail when they're put to the test. Always fail. True unity, better yet, Christian unity is characterized and must be driven by something outside of ourselves. Something greater than us and our preferences. Anything superficial that we may like must be driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the church, in days like today, in our society, where we have an ever-increasing, especially in Los Angeles, an ever-increasing multi-ethnic and multicultural world, the church needs to be visibly united across distinctions and those things that would be supposed barriers. And so today, the time that we're going to spend, I hope to be able to point to Christ and also to help us to understand just what does it mean and what would it look like for us to establish unity? How do we do that? What we're going to do is look at two overarching realities that guide our unity. If you would join me down in verses 9 through 11, and we can stand and read together in Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 9 and just read those three verses. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I know some of us have a Holman and some other versions. If you could just track with us. This is God's word to us. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You may be seated. Father, we pray that as we look at your word and the truths that Paul has put before the Colossians and that he so committed himself to, in his earthly ministry, that these things would be an exhortation, an admonishment, and an encouragement to us. As we live in a place like Los Angeles where the nations are in the neighborhoods, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it means to be united and to be committed to you and your glory and your fame. Use the preaching, use your word to sanctify us, and to set us apart for your work. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this section links together verses 5 through 9 and verses 12 to 17, where Paul has been communicating to us that in our new resurrected life, as the new man and new humanity, we are to put off some things and we are to put on other things. It instructs us of exactly what of our old humanity needs to be put off. And it tells us what to put on in Christ. It's bridging the gap between the old self and the new self. Our old way of life and the new creation that we are. This is a gap that Christians could never overcome unless, of course, Jesus has made us new creatures. And so Paul would point us to nothing else. In verse 10, he says... We have put on the new self, which is being renewed. 
That is to say, in the process of being changed or made new in knowledge after, after the image of its creator. We put off the old man and our old habits of immorality. You see it there in verse 5. Impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. We lay aside anger and wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from our mouths. And we do not lie to one another because we have a new life and we're called to a new quality of life. We put off these old things, these things that characterize our old man, because we have a new life and we're called to a new quality of life. As we're progressively transformed into Christ's likeness. This is both individual and corporate. Paul wants us to understand our individual need to put off the old man and also our corporate and our new, when I say humanity, I'm not just thinking about me as a new human being. I'm thinking about us as a new humanity. There's only one humanity prior to that, and that would be the human race. And then Christ, who's a new Adam, a second Adam, creates a new race. And so Paul links together personal sins of the heart, which amount to idolatry, according to verse 5. And then he also links it with interpersonal sins, which foster dissension and division in the body. So you've got not being involved anymore with immorality and impurity. And then you turn around and do not lie to one another. It's personal and it's also corporate. Our new life in Christ is corporate and has implications for the church. So the text that we are going to read through and walk through today... It's very relevant for us. It's from this understanding that Paul brings us to verse 11 to show us that the church must collectively put off the old barriers that separate men and women. Racism, traditionalism, monoculturalism, classism, all of the isms, even sexism. These have no place in the body of Christ Because God has united all believers together in him. So before we consider the two realities, remember I said we only have two points today or two realities. Before we do that, I want us, just like Paul, to look at those things that would be dividing us if we would allow them to. I want us to look at the distinctions that tend to bring division. You'll see it there in Colossians uh, uh, Colossians 3 verse 11. He begins and he says, here there is not Greek or Jew, neither Greek nor Jew. This is pretty easily understood for any student of the Bible at every level. I think even my children understand that Jews and Gentiles, they didn't associate, let alone relate to one another biblically in ancient times. And though the principle is for both quote unquote sides I think Paul wants us to view this, or he's speaking from the side of upmanship and partiality. And so you could be on either side and be towering yourself or trying to usurp a certain authority over others based on the fact that you see yourself in a privileged position. He wants to remove all the barriers that would cause a person to look down on anyone else. Male Jews would have considered themselves better than every other people group. I want to read to you one of their prayers. 
Part of their daily prayers included this statement. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe. That's great. Who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In their eyes, God was to be praised because they've been born with a supposed elite privilege. And here in our text, we've got Colossians 3.11. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. In Galatians chapter 3, we don't have to turn there, but in Galatians chapter 3, he actually adds male or female. He's combating these attitudes and this posture of, I am here, you are beneath me. God be praised because of my privilege. So I think as a level set, what I want all of us to do, each individual, one of us, and us corporately, is to hear this from our own seats of superiority. Hear this from your own place as an admonishment, not just to view ourselves as equal to others, but others as equal to us. So not just uh, myself as equal to the next man, but the next man as equal to me. Those things can be a mile apart. A mile apart. It sounds the same, but the attitude can be distinctly different, especially when I believe that I have the advantage. Seeing myself as valuable as the next person versus seeing the next person as valuable as me, those can be different. You'll recall that Paul had written to the Ephesians in chapter 2 that Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2, chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 14. Paul probably has in mind the literal dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles in the temple area in Jerusalem. In the temple area, you had courts. On the outer side, you had it. The Gentile court. And from there you had an inner court, which is where uh, female women could go. I'm sorry, female Jews. So women Jews could go. And at the innermost, you had the place where only the male Jews were allowed in. And on that outer wall, on that outer wall, was an inscription that was written in Greek and in Latin. In the language of those who would obviously read it, right? And it read, no man of another nation is to enter within the fence around this temple. And whoever is caught past this point will have his, himself to blame for his death. Can you imagine that? I want you to picture at this time in this sanctuary, an all African American or an all Anglo or an all Hispanic church. And all the men are in here, they're worshiping and they're enjoying fellowship and they're serving God and one another. And out in the foyer, you have their wives, their mothers, their daughters. They're not permitted inside, but they are out there in the foyer and outside on the church steps, doors closed or maybe even on the sign. We have a sign out here. The sign were to read in the language of whoever the outsiders would be, the surrounding community. Any man of another ethnicity who opens these doors will have himself to blame for us killing you. That seems far-fetched for us. I think a lot because of the analogy, but historically and in the context, this is what Paul is battling, and it has implications for us as well. 
I'm certain that this is what Paul had in mind. Turn with me in Acts chapter 21. I just want you to see how he almost lost his life for this very thing. Acts 21, we'll start reading in verse 27. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He was seeking to be killed because they supposed that he had brought Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple. This is what Paul is talking about when he comes with the exhortation that we need to see that there are no Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, uncircumcised or circumcised. It seems far-fetched, again, largely due to the analogy and maybe the time period, but these same attitudes that were being combated in the first century are helpful for us and needful for us to be challenged by in the 21st. They're preserved for us so that we would understand that every symbol and every sign of division that stands between any of the people of God must come down. In a church, there's no better standing based on ethnicity There's neither Jew nor Greek who can stand tall in their or because of their background. I don't get to stand here in a certain attitude because of my ethnicity, nor does the next man. And this is what Paul is saying. This is very relevant for us, though. Oftentimes we think, well, yeah, that was then and this is now. Even if we think about the history of our country, that there have been tumultuous times. 50, 60 years plus ago between even African-American and white in our country. But I want to remind us or maybe alert us that our very own Southern Baptist Convention just voted in June of 2016, about 60 days ago, to discontinue the display of the Confederate flag as a symbol of solidarity with the whole body of Christ, including African-Americans. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But although there was a majority vote in favor of the amendment, there was also a pretty big uproar from those who were opposed to it. And it was largely based on tradition and history. I want us to let that sink in for a moment. Exactly what about the Confederate flag is worth fighting tooth and nail over to maintain in our country today? At least we forget our denomination was founded in 1845 over dissension in the area of slavery and maintaining segregation. But specifically, 
It was whether or not to appoint slave owners as missionaries. That's how the Southern Baptist Convention came into play. And because we are Southern Baptists, we know where the Southerners stood. And this is not to repeat the history for saying, oh, no, woe is me. It's to say we must realize that even ourselves, we can easily fall prey to our preferences and allow ourselves to get off track with the word of God. Colossians 3.11, where it says, neither Jew nor Greek is teaching us that the cross is more important than our flags. And that our born-again family are more important than our birthrights. Sadly, some would rather hold on to family heritage and traditional values than to let go of them and embrace the body of Christ. And embrace our new humanity. This leads us to the second set of neither nor from Paul. He's dealt with what we might classify as racism at the time. Then he turns to one just like it in traditionalism with these words, circumcised and uncircumcised. This would actually grow out of the Jew-Greek comparison since circumcision for the Jews had been a mark of being a part of the people of God. You belong to God if you are circumcised. But after the birth of the church, this was a huge hurdle for the body to get over. And Paul himself had been on the front lines of the argument and the debate. And I want to show you that as well, just so that we can understand what he's saying and why he's saying it. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. As you're turning to Acts chapter 15, I want to remind us that Paul is on his first missionary journey. Going across Asia Minor, he's been through Iconium and Lystra, which are just east of Colossae. Though persecuted and almost stoned to death by unbelieving Jews, he was seeing God open amazing doors of faith to the Gentiles, according to Acts 14 and verse 27. And when we jump into our text in Acts 15, we find these words. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the elders or some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Jump down to verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so these are believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so here Peter, once he hears of this, and there's this great dissension, he jumps into the middle of the argument. Verse 7, And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Hear what he said? He goes on and essentially says, why are you trying to put on them what we can't even keep for ourselves? 
Why are you trying to make it seem as if there is a way to earn our salvation, things that we have been born and raised and traditionally trying to keep to that we ourselves can't even hold on to? And they wound up, they wound up sending a letter to the Colossians or to uh, those who were there in uh, Iconium or Antioch, sorry. They sent a letter to them to say, that's not necessary. Stay away from strangled things. Stay away from blood and sexual immorality. That's it. That's all that there is. This is a pressing issue for the church, though, almost from the start. For Paul to state that there was neither circumcised nor uncircumcised was no light matter. For us, I mean, it's just a kind of cultural thing. You do it or you don't do it with your baby when he's born. But for them, this was a big deal. But what was he actually touching? Not their physical body form. He was talking about religious tradition. That you must conform to Jewish standards in order to be saved. That's why Paul used such strong language in Galatians 5. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there. Galatians 5, he said, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says, I'm telling you again, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Amen. For them, it was circumcision. For us, it might be a host of other things. What are, I mean, you think about what are some of the religious traditions that we hold on to that if a person walks in the door and they don't fit that description, we might be prone to withhold fellowship from them. We might even be prone to regard them as one who is not of us and not our brother. It might be a host of things. The bottom line, though, is that Christ cannot be added to. Our traditions do not weigh in on a person's salvation, nor does it give us ground for division. After demolishing the vice versa of racism and now of traditionalism, Paul then widens the scope to include social and cultural spheres. Cultural walls of division. Barbarian, Scythian. And this is interesting. For most people living in that time, there were three known people groups. You had Jews, you had Gentiles, and then you had barbarians. And barbarians essentially meant that you were not a Greek-speaking Greek. <laughs> you were illiterate. You're uneducated. You're the low in the society. Barbarians were synonymous with that. And Paul's inclusion of barbarian is to say even the lowest in society stand on equal footing in the church. To take it a step further, he goes on and he says Scythian. And this is not a comparison like the others. This is more of taking it a step further. Scythians were considered to be the most barbaric of the barbarians. Lowest of the low. Scythians were the murderous, a cannibalistic group. The things that they would do... No one wanted to be around them. They were a savage group. 
Josephus writes about them that they were little to be regarded above wild beasts. The things they did to humans ought not to be mentioned, but Paul brings them into a picture as if to say, here, in God's family, even the worst of the worst is joined together with you to Christ and in Christ. We might not point out, uh, you know, anyone in this room, but we might be prone to think of people from other sides of town, right? Or another area or certain area. I'll use an example of myself. My mother, I remember growing up, she would always talk about people from the projects. I grew up in the city of Linwood. All of us know where Linwood is. We could walk there from here down Somerset. Grew up in Linwood, and she would always talk about people from the projects. Well, she had already been grown up on the other side of the tracks. My mom's from Watts. She grew up on Wigan Avenue and 103rd. So you cross Alameda, she's in the city of Watts. And you could throw a rock. I mean, literally, you could walk to the projects from her house quicker than we would get out to Alondra from here. But she would always talk about people from the projects. They're considered ghetto. Right. All of them are considered ghetto. If you ask certain people, they're uneducated, they're a lower class. But the project people, no, you don't associate with them and you don't go there. Not if you want to maintain any dignity, not if you want to even preserve your safety, do not associate with them. So Paul is bringing that, that level into the conversation. It's not just Jew and Greek. It's not just whether or not you keep to the religious traditions because they were Greeks who were circumcised. No, it's barbarians. And not just barbarians, the worst of the worst. Scythians. And yet God through Paul says here that barbarians, even Scythians, are in. So the cultural boundaries of insider, outsider, That mentality, it must come down. It's a barrier that doesn't exist. A fellowship including Jews and Gentiles and barbarians and Scythians. That was unthinkable in their day. Nevertheless, this is exactly what happened in the church. It's exactly what we can look around and see being the reality, even in a room like this. Christ demolishes cultural barriers that separate men. To be clear, they were still Jewish, were still Greek, still barbarian, if you were, I mean, if you would. And even those who he included in Galatians, they're still male and female. This is not about demolishing the distinctions. It's about realizing that they never, I mean, they no longer have the standing to separate or divide us. The walls that we erect must come down. And he doesn't stop there. The walls of class must come down too. Slave and free man. Here's another social barrier that's easy for us to understand. We have CEOs and COOs and retired law enforcement. All these make up the body of Christ. People with the glorious title of worker. (laughs) Right? (laughs) To be a slave or free was essentially, in ancient times, a slave was viewed as a living tool. Somebody who to be, to be used for my own personal gain and advancement, not a person to be valued. And there was at least one wealthy man with slaves in the Colossian church who would understand very well what Paul was hinting at. At the end of the letter, we don't have to turn there in Colossians. Paul says he sent in a faithful, beloved brother who was one of the Colossians to encourage their hearts and bring testimony to them. 
At one time, Philemon had a slave who would run away, and this Onesimus that Paul was sending had the letter, and he hand-delivered it. He had since run into Paul. Paul gave him the gospel. He had been converted to Christ. And now Paul had written to Philemon to take him back. This is what he said in Philemon, verse 15 and 16. Perhaps this is why he has been separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. You see, in the body of Christ, there's no place for any barriers of separation, and and that includes prominence and obscurity. In God's family, there are no unimportant persons. There are no slaves, if you were. We're all servant leaders. We should all be slaves of Christ and therefore serving him from pure hearts and serving one another, eager to even wash one another's feet, if you would. There's no insignificant person in the body of Christ, only dearly loved brothers. And so the question that we must answer after we walk through this is, where they may exist in the household of faith, how do these walls actually come down? How do these walls come down and how are we to see this level of unity in our churches? As we've seen, it won't be any, in any superficial things that we wish to bind us. The solution is not found in any worldly means. It's not because we like the same things or we're from the same place or we speak the same language. I had great short fellowship with Vicky right before. She talked to me about how she teaches Russian. So I'm going to introduce her to my daughter who's also learning the language. But Paul essentially tells us that it's not going to be those kinds of things that establish our unity. We can't stake our claim in those, those are like quicksand. They will go away. At some point, you decide that you want to do something else. Just like, or how about this? When it all hits the fan, what did Tonto do? He said, hey, what do you mean we? Right? What do you mean we? Paul encouraged the Colossians earlier in his chapter, <clears throat> in verse 1, to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And to set our minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. For we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. So for Paul, the two realities that define our unity are the preeminence of Christ among us and the presence of Christ in all of us. Put simply, in Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. The preeminence of Christ among us Paul's gone to length to present Christ to the Colossians as supreme in all things. Here he simply says Christ is all. But what does that mean? Turn with me to chapter 1 in Colossians. In in Colossians chapter 1, he goes on about Christ beginning in about verse 15 and says he's the image of the invisible God. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. This point just about preaches itself in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. 
He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He keeps going, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, verse 21, who were once alienated alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Our unity begins and ends in the gospel. It hinges on what we believe about who Christ is and what he has done. When Jesus is supreme, when the substitutionary atonement, the death of Jesus Christ in place of those who believe is all encompassing to us, when that's the most important thing, when he himself and his glory is matchless in our minds, then all of his purposes, including unity, will be accomplished in and among us. Preeminence of Christ. Has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos are tuned to one fork and not to each other? When we talk about unity, if these pianos are all tuned to the same fork, then they end up being in unison with one another automatically. They're tuned to each other, they're of one accord. One accord, by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. And so, a hundred believers gathered together, meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to one another than if they would look away from God and Christ and the gospel and to start focusing themselves on unity. How do I become unified? What do we need to do to be unified? Look to Christ. Treasure Christ. Worship Jesus Christ. This is what defines and accomplishes unity. The gospel has reconciled worshipers from every ethnic background from every culture and from every class, to God and to one another. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, And they shall reign on the earth. That's Revelation 5 and 9. The preeminence of Christ among us. And the presence of Christ in all of us. The angels sang it. And now John in the Revelation sees it. After this I looked and behold. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When Paul says in Colossians 3.11 that Christ is in all, he's picturing people from all different 
people groups from every different time. All over the earth, including but certainly not limited to those who he's named in our text. There's Jews, there are Gentiles, uncircumcised and circumcised. There are barbarians and the worst of them. There's slave, there's free, there's male, there's female. They're multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual. I think the vision of God, uh, the vision of God's people that John sees essentially would look something like people who are from African countries and European countries and Latin American countries and Asian countries. They're innumerable. They're all there. And they're united, not walking hand in hand, taking pictures, diversity pictures, talking about kumbaya. No, they're worshiping the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. How else does that happen? Even in a church like this, for many, many years, the neighborhood, the community represented a certain ethnicity. And that is what the church was made up of. And now you look around the room and it's different. Even PJ stands here. In his blended family. The reason why that happens is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ethnic peoples of the world will be in harmony and brought together in worship of our God. Ultimately. We know that this is the final reality, but what would it look like for us to be a snapshot of heaven? As I said, that is our desire. If you go to our website, that's the one liner that we have to be a snapshot of heaven. We want to look the way that we see our community look. And at the same time that we see in John's revelation, the church is actually represented. But what would it look like for all of the church in America to pray and to actually strive for, as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's critical that Christians today would visualize the true body of Christ. If the ultimate people of God portrayed in Revelation are multi-ethnic in fulfillment of God's original intention, not some accident, because those same people, chapters later it says, he purchased with his blood, He was slain before the foundation of the world. If the ultimate people of God are portrayed that way, then we in the church should work toward that ideal as well. Now, my grandmother owned a house that was built in 1930. It's about a 1,800-square-foot home, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, And over the years, the house underwent a number of work projects, as you can imagine, even so much as having been moved in 1970 by truck from Beverly Hills to where it sits in Los Angeles. But it wasn't until recently that its potential was realized. Last January, my grandmother passed away. And after sitting on the market, under market value for almost a year, it finally sold to an investor. Within 90 days, it was back on the market and it was selling for higher than the asking price and higher than the market value. What had changed? For the most part, some walls came down. Sure, there was fresh paint and some new appliances, but the major renovation, it took place 
in the then kitchen and family room and dining room and hallway. There were four spaces that were divided and separated by three unnecessary walls. Those barriers, one almost fully enclosing the dining room, you could barely fit a table, let alone chairs in. And the other created a dead end, not so hallway, that you had to walk toward the end of the house, through the kitchen, and backwards in order to get into the first bedroom. The dividing walls were torn down, and all of a sudden, there was a new openness and a unity in the house. The family room, the dining area, the newly remodeled kitchen, open, free-flowing. And it was a new union between these areas and the rest of the house because you could get into the hallway right from the front. Suddenly, things flowed and could be enjoyed ten times better. It was almost as if it was planned that way and things were the way that they were supposed to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we could look into John's revelation and see that your son was slain before the foundation of the world to purchase people from every tribe and every tongue every nation. And you have called us and you've reconciled us together in your body, Lord Jesus, by your blood. You've torn down every wall that would separate men and women, boy and girl, black and white, Hispanic and Asian and Polynesian. God, you have brought us together in Christ. We praise you, Lord Jesus. And it is our desire that our lives would emulate that and that we would even imitate your example in our dealings with those who we would consider to be, quote, unquote, beneath us or less than us. May we not be so high minded. Father, would you humble us to see others as valuable, as image bearers created in the image and the likeness of our God? died for, purchased, and ultimately united together in Christ. We worship you. We give you the glory. Amen.